So good afternoon, everybody. Thank you all so much for coming. I'm very excited about this particular episode of Money Concepts. Uh, so as many of you know, I, I don't have a formal background in finance or investing or anything like that. Uh, I've taken one or two uh, courses on basic accounting at university, and uh, that's basically, uh, uh, that, that, that's all the formal background I have. Um, and yet today, uh, I probably know uh, uh, more about investing uh, than uh, a lot of my friends and uh, uh, in, within, within my uh, uh, network, uh, I, I'm probably one of the more knowledgeable people uh, on investing. And uh, so how did this happen? Uh, how, how did a guy with just a computer science uh, background uh, learn the fundamentals uh, of investing? And uh, Buffett's letters uh, played a big part in, um, uh, in helping me improve my knowledge and learn the fundamental concepts uh, from first principles. And so um, in this uh, episode, I want to share with you uh, some of the key things that I learned from uh, reading Buffett's letters. Uh, now, I, I firmly believe that uh, if you want to uh, improve your investing knowledge, uh, even, even if you already know uh, quite a bit about investing, uh, if you really want to understand how to think about investing from first principles, um, I, I would strongly advise you to go and read Buffett's letters. Now, there are two sets of letters. Uh, one is the, the partnership letters uh, that uh, Buffett wrote uh, to his uh, limited partners when they were uh, when, when he was managing their money. The second set of letters, uh, which is more well known, is uh, Buffett's uh, Berkshire uh, letters to Berkshire shareholders. Um, since 1965 or so, uh, Buffett has been writing one letter per year. And if you just go back and uh, read all these letters, so um, uh, so 1965 was about, uh, say, uh, 60 years approximately uh, ago. And um, so 60 years, if you, if you read one letter per day, uh, it will take you roughly two months uh, to complete all the letters. And uh, over the course of this two months, uh, you will gain so much investing uh, knowledge uh, if you just do this exercise. And uh, I, I did something similar to that. Uh, it did not take me two months. It took me actually three months to go through the letters because uh, so, some days uh, I just couldn't get to it and so on. But I stuck with it. And over a three-month period, I, I read every single letter that Buffett wrote. And uh, this really uh, helped me gain so much perspective on investing. Uh, now, I should warn you that this is not an easy project. Uh, there are some problems. Uh, so if, if it is so easy to learn the basics of investing, uh, why don't more people just go and read all of Buffett's letters? Well, uh, the first problem is that uh, the letters are 1,500 pages long. If you, if you put all the letters together um, and count the number of pages, uh, you will get about 1,500 pages or so. And, uh, you know, in, in today's uh, world of uh, sort of uh, instant gratification, no, nobody wants to sit and read 1500 pages. So that, that's one reason why the letters are not uh, as well read as they probably should be. Um, the second thing is uh, these letters actually have two purposes. Uh, 
uh, at least if you take the Berkshire letters, uh, there, there are two purposes to these letters. The first purpose is for uh, Buffett to update shareholders on what happened uh, at Berkshire uh, during the past year. So, for example, the, the 2008 letter uh, will, will tell investors a little bit about uh, what are all the um, things that happened in Berkshire in 2008. Um, so what, what acquisitions did they make? Uh, how much did uh, book value go up or down? How did the insurance operations do? Oh, all these things. Um, so Berkshire is a complicated business. And uh, so Buffett uses these letters to update investors and shareholders uh, on uh, what's happening in the business. The second purpose of uh, the letters is to teach people the fundamentals of investing. So Buffett uses these letters as a way to explain investing concepts in very simple language, uh, very clearly uh, to his uh, audience. Um, and so there is a problem. Uh, these two purposes are not really related to one another. And so uh, if half the letter or uh, three fourth of the letter focuses on uh, just the Berkshire update, uh, the uh, only a small portion of each letter uh, focuses on teaching investing concepts. And uh, so you have to parse those things a little bit. And uh, so that, that may be another reason why uh, these letters are uh, not uh, quite used as, as often for investing education. Uh, the third thing is that uh, the concepts in these letters, they are somewhat scattered. So, um, for example, if you, if you want to learn about uh, what Buffett thinks of inflation. Uh, now, now, there is uh, the 1980 letter that you can go and read where he talks a little bit about uh, uh, inflation uh, using what is called the hamburger test. Basically, he says if you, if you spend 10 hamburgers uh, worth of money to go and buy an investment, and then that investment gives you uh, a return, uh, say a dividend, uh, with which you can go and buy two hamburgers, and then later, when you dispose of the investment, uh, you, you get eight uh, hamburgers worth of money at the end. Then basically, you've spent 10 hamburgers worth of money and you've got back 10 hamburgers worth of money. So you haven't made any real return, no matter how much the, uh, uh, how, how much the investment appreciated in dollars. So your nominal return may look great, but the real return is exactly zero in this uh, particular scenario. So the 1980 letter talks a little bit about this, but then there's also stuff about inflation in the 1981 letter. Um, then there is uh, an article that he wrote for Fortune magazine, uh, which is called how inflation swindles the equity investor. There are lots of things about inflation there too. And then the 2011 letter also covers uh, some aspects of inflation and um, you know, purchasing power and things like that. So if you, if you want to learn Buffett's thoughts about inflation, they're not in one place. You have to uh, sort of combine multiple resources, multiple letters together to get his thoughts. Similarly, if you want to know what Buffett thinks about buybacks, share buybacks, uh, the 2011 letter has something about buybacks uh, with, with regard to IBM. Uh, the 2020 letter uh, talked about buybacks uh, uh, at Apple and uh, the basic mechanism behind how they work. Then there's also some stuff about buybacks in the 2016 letter which talks about uh, the impact on exiting shareholders versus continuing shareholders. So you, you uh, they're not in one convenient place. So, so it takes a little bit of uh, uh, digging around to, uh, to understand um, all of Buffett's thoughts uh, on a particular topic, at least all, all the thoughts that are in uh, his writings.
then there's also a lot of repetition in the letters. Uh, so um, each year, Berkshire is a business that uh, that doesn't change a whole lot from year to year. So if Buffett talks about, uh, uh, say, a look-through earnings, which is an, a very important concept in investing, um, uh, the, the, the 1995 letter may contain something about look-through earnings. 1996 letter may repeat the same thing uh, and, and so on. Uh, or uh, if you want to learn about the power of float, uh, Berkshire has, uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars uh, worth of float. And uh, so you have to uh, suffer through a certain amount of repetition uh, in these letters. So so these are all the problems uh, with uh, reading Buffett's letters. But in spite of all these problems, if you just stick with, with them, and if you read from beginning to end, 1965 to uh, his latest uh, 2020 letter, uh, you will see that uh, your knowledge as an investor uh, will improve tremendously. And uh, at least that, that is how it was for me. And um, before starting to read his letters, I did not really know a whole lot about investing. Um, but once I've read through all his letters, I, I can say that uh, I have a decent appreciation for all the key uh, or most of the key concepts in investing. Uh, so, in this particular episode, um, I'd like to talk about some uh, of the concepts. It's not possible to cover all the 1,500 pages of Buffett's letters in this uh, uh, one episode. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about maybe 10 concepts or so, uh, and then I'll throw it up to uh, you guys to ask questions and so on. Um, so the first key concept is that it's very hard to become financially independent on just a salary. Uh, unless you're a very highly paid CEO or something like that, uh, with interest rates where they are and inflation, what it is, it's very hard to become financially independent on just a salary. Uh, you need to own businesses in order to become financially independent for most people. And uh, you can own those businesses two ways. Either you can um, uh, go, go and buy uh, shares of businesses in, in the stock market or uh, you can own and operate your own business. And uh, uh, so that, that is the first key concept. Uh, the, the secret to Buffett's uh, riches is that he, uh, from a very young age, he has been collecting businesses um, and businesses that uh, put a lot of cash in his pocket. Uh, and secondly, Buffett has this uh, uh, quote that he's a better investor because he's a business operator and he's a better business operator because he's an investor. So if you are uh, both an investor and uh, the owner or operator of a business, um, one set of skills uh, feeds into the other and it is like a virtuous cycle. And uh, these two skill sets will sort of reinforce each other and uh, you'll become better at both as a result of this. And that is simply because uh, if you operate a business, you will learn so much about how much capital you need to put in and uh, where that capital goes into. Does it go into fixed assets or does it go into inventory? Do you need to put money into R&D, marketing, and so on? And then uh, for this capital, how much cash does the business generate? How much of this cash can you take out and how much of this cash should you leave uh, in the business? What, uh, what What is the competitive landscape around you? What competitive advantages do you have uh, over other people? Uh, what is your brand? What is your moat? How much pricing power you have? 
all these things uh, become very very clear to you when you're operating a business and uh, this this sort of clarity uh, emerges uh, when you're operating a business all all these things um, come to you naturally and these are all uh, very important for investors to understand as well and that's why i think uh, buffett's letters are such a great read because uh, most of us uh, or or many of us we we don't own businesses of our own and we don't run businesses day to day many of us are salaried uh, people and for us to uh, sort of learn about businesses from a uh, from a great owner operator like buffett that is one of the key utilities of uh, these letters so um, uh, of course it, it it can't substitute operating a business but uh, it is sort of the next best thing to learn from somebody who is so skilled at operating businesses uh so this automatically feeds into the 2007 letter so if if you're going to start with a particular letter you don't want to read all the 1500 pages you want just one uh one letter to read uh i would say start with the 2007 letter so in the 2007 letter buffett had this uh, section called businesses the great the good and the gruesome where he methodically takes you through the anatomy of a business how businesses work and how do you tell whether a business is a wonderful business or not a wonderful business we've all heard of his uh, famous quote saying uh, a wonderful business at a fair price is better than a fair business at a wonderful price but uh, if you want to truly understand uh, what this quote means you have to be able to tell what a wonderful business is and what is not a wonderful business and so how can you tell that that is what this whole section in the 2007 letter is about and it's it's a wonderful section and i would encourage you to uh, sort of go and read it um then there is a, a whole lot of discussion on growth versus value so if you look at the 1992 letter buffett says that uh, growth and value are joined at the hip and growth is always a component in the calculation of value uh, when i read this particular uh, uh, letter It, it it made so much sense to me um so um you know in in the financial media we are accustomed to uh, talking about investors as either growth investors or value investors and uh, buffett says that this distinction doesn't really make a whole lot of sense uh, because value investors they want to buy cash flows at uh, less than what what uh, what they are worth and if those cash flows are growing over time because of growth then you have to consider you have to take that into account so growth is a component in the calculation of value and there's no such thing as a uh, or, or the distinction between a growth investor and a value investor that's kind of an artificial distinction it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense um so that that, that is a such a key point um uh, the other thing that buffett talks about is uh, this whole idea of investing versus speculation so investing is very simple it's cash in cash out so in his uh, 2013 letter for example uh, buffett talks about two investments that he made which are not in stocks or companies or anything like that one investment is a farm that he bought and the second uh, investment is a, is an apartment building near nyu uh, which he bought along with a bunch of other investors and um, basically analyzing an investment for buffett is uh, how much cash do you have to put into the investment 
and over time how much cash can you take out of the investment that that's basically all there is to investing um speculation is when uh, you try to time the market essentially so um, there's an investment that you buy for a certain price uh, but then every day uh, the the price at which you can buy or sell that investment uh, changes in the market and if you are buying an investment just to hold forever and to get all the cash flows from it like um, for example if you buy a farm for a certain price and the farm uh, generates a certain amount of revenue for you um, cash flows for you every year uh, th- that that would be an example of uh, an investment because you are buying the farm at a certain price um, hoping for future cash flows down the line that more than justify the current price you don't care about uh, whether there is a market for the farm or not whether you can sell the farm tomorrow at a slightly higher price you don't you don't care about any of that you only care about you know how, how much the farm produces in crops and things like that and how much cash uh, the farm can generate for you over its uh, useful life right um, so so that is investing whereas uh, if you buy buy a stock today um, hoping to sell it to someone else uh, tomorrow at a at a higher price uh, that that is kind of speculation because uh, the market is not in your control and um, so the market could go up it could go down the stock could go up the stock could go down um, that that's not 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 at all in your control so if you're buying something hoping to sell tomorrow at a at a higher price that's speculation if you're buying something with the intention of holding it forever you don't care what the market does you know that the cash flows that come out of uh, this particular investment are going to more than make up for the purchase price that you paid for the investment uh, that is investing and not speculation so so um, in in his uh, 2013 letter uh, buffett has a section called some thoughts about investing so if you have read the 2007 letter as i said uh, talking about what what makes a wonderful business the next thing to read is this 2013 letter uh, this particular section called some thoughts on investing that that is a fantastic uh, section uh so so the, these are the main uh, concepts uh, then if you finish reading these two uh, i i would say that the 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 third letter that had the greatest impact on me was the 1986 letter um and in the 1986 letter buffett has this section on owner earnings uh, so he talks about uh, when when a business generates cash uh, you may have to invest some ca- some of that cash back into the business itself you may not be able to take out all of it and this excess cash that is invested back into the business uh, that may or may not produce uh, growth in earnings in the future so for example if you if you if the business relies on a particular asset which you bought for say 1 1 billion dollars and uh, now uh, so 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 uh, th- think of uh, a company like intel for example with their fabs Uh, so so they have fabs and each each fab costs something like 5 billion dollars uh, to build now um one one fact about the semiconductor industry is that uh, these fabs have become more and more expensive over time so uh, intel today it has a certain number of fabs and it's able to generate a certain amount of cash from these fabs uh, but if it wants to generate the same amount of cash next year 
it has to spend a lot of money upgrading its fabs and so on moving to newer technologies um, because um, you know uh, transistors get smaller and smaller you need more and more advanced manufacturing equipment so intel in order to sustain its current level of earnings it has to keep spending more and more on fabs and so uh, this is a business where you can't really take out all the earnings as cash if you decide to take out all the earnings of the company as cash then uh, there will be no uh, nothing left to invest and so next year the earnings will drop precipitously uh, simply because uh, intel would have fallen behind uh, tsmc and so many others uh, in in the in the fab technology uh, so so that that is the key idea behind owner earnings um, suppose you don't want to grow the business you want to just keep the earnings of the business exactly what they are uh, how much cash can you take out of the business each year and how much should compulsorily be reinvested back into the business just to preserve uh, the current earning power of the business so uh, this this how much cash can be taken out each year that is what buffett calls as owner earnings and that is such a critical concept to understand if you're an investor so so uh, after you read the 2007 and 2013 uh, letters uh, i would say that the 1986 letter that covers owner earnings that that had a huge uh, impact on me when i first uh, came across it uh, then of course um, if you, if you're worried about inflation uh, you you, sh- you should read his 1980 letter and the 81 letter as well where he explains how uh, just pricing power is not enough uh, so so he uh, buffett asked the question uh, which businesses are robust to inflation and which businesses are not robust to inflation and he uh, comes to the conclusion that it's not enough for a business uh, just to have pricing power it should have something more than pricing power if it wants to be robust to inflation and uh, that is return on capital so um, in an inflationary environment uh, businesses should be able to increase their returns on capital uh, only then the real returns to their owners uh, will will be indifferent to inflation so that is a beautiful discussion so i would suggest that you read that as well uh, as well as uh, uh, buffett's wonderful article in fortune magazine uh, which is called how inflation swindles the equity investor so these uh, these two letters 80 and 81 and uh, this particular letter in uh, this particular article in fortune magazine that also made uh, a very big impact on me um then there is the the 2011 letter in which he talks about uh, volatility and risk so what is the connection between the two is volatility part of risk or is uh, is risk and volatility are they two completely different concepts uh, what exactly is the relationship between the two and where does beta fit, uh, factor into into this so uh, if a stock has a high beta does does it mean automatically that it is riskier or not uh, so he he answers uh, qu- questions like this in his 2011 letter and uh, that that's also a, a wonderful read um uh, one last nugget that i will mention is uh, in his uh, 1989 letter uh, buffett talks about the power of uh, tax deferred uh, compounding and uh, so i i will just read this one paragraph uh, from from buffett's 89 letter uh, imagine that berkshire had only 
which we put into a security that doubled by year end and was then sold. Imagine further that we use the after-tax proceeds to repeat this process in each of the next 19 years, scoring a double each time. So, so each time you buy an investment, you sell it at the end of the year, and each time the investment doubles. At the end of 20 years, the 34% capital gains tax that we would have paid on the profits from each sale would have delivered about $13,000 to the government and we would be left with about $25,000. So at the time, Berkshire was paying a 34% capital gains tax. So even if it doubled its investment every year and sold it at the end of the year, at the end of 20 years, $1 would have become uh, $25,000. But if we made a single fantastic investment that itself doubled 20 times during the 20 years, our dollar would grow to about $1 million. Were we then to cash out, we would pay a 34% tax of roughly $350,000 and be left with roughly $692,000. So this talks about the power of tax deferred compounding, which is so key for long-term investors to understand. So if you, if you, had, a, uh, if you had to pay tax, uh, well, uh, as the saying goes, death and taxes are uh, both unavoidable. But uh, since, uh, since there's no avoiding death and taxes, the next best thing to do is to defer both for as long as possible. So, um, you know, obviously we want to defer death as, uh, for as long as possible, but taxes also work the same way. And um, so, so um, $1, uh, if you pay a tax every year, uh, it becomes $25,000. If you just waited until 20 years and then paid the tax, um, you, you would have about $690,000. So that's the difference between $25,000 and $690,000. That is the power of tax deferred compounding. And this is from his uh, 1989 letter. And when I read this, uh, this, this also um, made, a, made an impact on me. And I understood sort of the, the importance of tax deferred compounding. Um, so these are all the lessons I picked up from Buffett's letters. There are, there are plenty more, uh, but I don't want to uh, make this a, a monologue since I've already spoken for about half an hour or so. Uh, so uh, I, I'll be happy to take some questions now and we can, um, if, if you have any any particular concept in his letters that, that particularly spoke to you as an investor that you want to share with us, uh, please do so. Or uh, if you just had a question about a particular letter or a particular concept, uh, feel free to ask those as well. Hi, uh, sorry, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Uh, th thanks for the great, uh, you know, like uh, introduction to like a few of the letters which you would recommend. I'm just curious, you know, for someone, like for people who haven't actually, you know, read Buffett's letters, um, would you recommend like going sequentially or would you recommend going in the order that you mentioned, you know, in terms of, 2007 and then 2013 and then just moving on like uh is, is there like a like if you had to recommend the letters to someone like would you recommend them in the order that you just mentioned or would you recommend them sequentially even though it's like 1500 um pages like i think over a long period of time do you think someone would gain more knowledge reading it sequentially versus sorry that was my question uh that that's a great question and uh, so um if you're confident that uh, you will stick through 
uh, the, the process, then I would recommend going through uh, the letters sequentially. Uh, simply because there is so much insight in, in these letters. And uh, if you start at the 1965 letter, it, it will take you two months uh, if you read one letter per day to complete uh, this uh, uh, all, all the letters. And if you're confident that you will be able to stick through this because a lot of people may start the process, but then they may not finish it. So they will only get a limited amount of value out, out of the process. Um, but if, if you can stick with it, then I would recommend that you uh, uh, go go sequentially. But if you feel uh, you really want uh, uh, the meat uh, in in the letters, you want to understand a few key concepts. Uh, say say you want to understand something about buybacks, for example. Uh, if you if you just want Buffett's thoughts on buybacks or something like that, then uh, I, I would say just uh, get all the letters. Um, uh, so uh, this this is how Monish Pabrai also recommends that you read the letters. So basically, get all the letters, then uh, merge them all into one one big PDF, and then if, when you want to learn Buffett's thoughts on inflation, uh, just search the PDF for inflation. Or when you want to um, um, learn Buffett's thoughts on uh, say share repurchases, uh, search the PDF for that, and then. Um, you, you can read just the sections that, that are of interest to you at, at one particular point um, in time. So uh, both, both work, uh, but if, if you have the time and um, you don't think you'll give up that easily, I would say uh, just start sequentially. Um, the, the letters are beautifully written and uh, you, you will learn a lot in, in just a couple of months. So yeah, any any more questions? Uh, the ne next question comes from Shashi. Hi, thank you. How are you? Hey, doing good. How are you? Good, good. Uh, so my question is, uh, I mean, I did read. Uh, I did. I mean, uh, I tried reading uh, the letters and. Uh, uh there are parts uh, where he he mostly mentions about these insurance companies which uh, right. i never could understand you know uh, and uh, i mean uh, to be honest i believe most of them most of the investors you know they try to avoid the insurance companies uh so uh, also one thing is like uh, i uh, i mean i've seen a lot of people write these books uh, that has this uh, concise uh, version of these letters. Uh, do you recommend any good books that you can read uh, that basically, you know, has a, a concise uh, version of all these letters? Well, that that's a good question. I think uh, Lawrence Cunningham has a couple of uh, good good books that cover uh, some of the concepts in the letters. But um, as I haven't read any um, any any of these uh, sort of concise versions. Uh, I, I, I cannot recommend uh, in any particular book, uh, although uh, I, I have been thinking about um, making a course or something like that with uh, with, with the key uh, lessons from these letters. So, <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Because when I started reading, most of the time, it, it's kind of repetitive, you know, because uh, he always talks right. about uh, insurance companies and 
the performance and all those things you know it sometimes kind of distracting if there is something that you know uh, like uh, summarizes everything as a one like a one document that will be great thanks uh, right right exactly so it's not uh, it's definitely not natural or easy uh, to understand insurance accounting it's a very very complicated area yeah. and uh, <laughs> a, a large number of insurance companies um, they they take on enormous amounts of risk and uh, they they operate at uh, at underwriting losses and things like that so mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. just because an insurance company has uh, 10 profitable years uh, doesn't mean it's doing a good job uh, it may be taking on a risk uh, which which may happen only in the 11th year and then wipe out the gains of all the previous 10 years that that could happen very easily with insurance companies yeah. uh, so yeah. so it's not not easy to understand them and uh, and also for yeah. someone who is starting uh, starting uh, it it will be really difficult to uh, go through that especially the insurance part yes i think so so you really have to separate the letters into two things uh, one is what happened at berkshire that particular year which is where most of the insurance uh, related information is uh, so mm-hmm. and then the second thing is general investing concepts uh, which you can take away from the letter uh regardless of what hap- whatever happened at berkshire that particular year the letter was written so each each letter you have to split it into these two parts and then you have to try and take the the general concepts uh without getting too bogged down by by the details of uh you know whether berkshire made a, an underwriting profit that year or underwriting loss or whatever yeah 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 also uh, i think uh, even charlie 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 mung also uh had written something called uh, the art of stock picking something like that have you oh, um, uh, got a chance to read that no the the art of stock picking um i've, I've read yeah, some charlie's like almanac but i um, i i don't think um, okay i'll I, I, maybe i'll uh, dm you the link oh absolutely that that'll be great okay okay thank you thanks thank you Bye. thank you so much shashi thanks uh the the next question comes from uh vinod hi tanke uh thanks hey, for Vinod. setting up this thanks for setting up this and uh, thanks for uh, allowing me to ask question uh oh, absolutely so just a couple of questions or maybe a thoughts uh, uh the uh any key insights or your interpretations uh or learnings from the the partnership letters uh, which you touched upon beginning of the call uh, anything we are going to miss out if you don't read it or maybe if you can throw some direction in terms of how do we take the earlier letters of uh, uh, warren buffett's uh, partnership letters and specifically i believe this investment style is also slightly different uh, because he was managing a small amount of capital even you was looking more of cigar butt uh, type bits right maybe if you can right exactly um uh, throw some light on that and also the the way i i think the previous uh, some of other callers also they mentioned though it is a very few pages of the letter the way i try to go about it especially uh, when i try to look at uh, some of the key aspects like look through earnings owners capital i tend to rely on your earlier thread to understand the practical uh, way of our understanding in improving my understanding on those concepts those threads are really helpful uh, 
uh, I just want to highlight this. I appreciate all your efforts that you're putting it on that. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, right. So, so about the the partnership letters. Uh, yes, you are absolutely right. So Buffett's uh, style of investing has changed a lot uh, since since the days he was running his partnership. So when he was running his partnership, he only had a small amount of capital, uh, um, maybe a few million dollars. Uh, that that that's about it. And he he would buy all these companies. Uh, like for example, he would he would buy a farm farm equipment uh, manufacturer or something like that. And then he would uh, invest mostly through the balance sheet, which is um, he, he would take a look at what are all the assets the, the company has and uh, how much of those assets can be sold away and uh, uh, how, how much cash would he be able to get if he, say, sold, sold off the inventory uh, in the business or something like that. And the reason why he was investing like this and thinking like this is because uh, at the time when he bought the businesses, he was buying them at, uh, at a discount to uh, the assets on the balance sheet. So um, uh, if you if you bought a business at say 50% of book value or whatever, um, theoretically the uh, the assets uh, minus the liabilities of the business um, uh, could could get you a hundred percent return, right? Because if you if you had a business that had hundred dollars worth of assets and you bought it for fifty dollars, uh, you can score a quick double if you can sell those assets at hundred dollars. Um, so, so Buffett was thinking about investing in, in these terms at that time. And so if you read his partnership letters, uh, you, you will get a big flavor of this. Um, but even in the partnership letters, he, he, Buffett would usually not tell investors, uh, the name of the names of the companies that he was investing in. And, uh, the, the reason why, uh, he, he wouldn't do this is because, um, yeah, these investors, they, they are not, they don't have the same level of risk tolerance or volatility tolerance that Buffett had. And so um, he, he would explain concepts in investing, but he would not uh, share the names of the companies that the partnerships was investing in, uh, in, in these letters. Um, the other thing you can take away from the partnership letters is just general fund management principles. So if you uh, if you're thinking about managing money for other people, uh, how exactly do you structure the fund? Uh, what what is a reasonable fee structure? Um, so so Buffett Buffett had uh, a particular fee structure which uh, which took uh, I, I, if if I remember right it's uh, zero percent of assets under management and uh, uh, I think twenty five percent of all all profits above a six percent hurdle with a high watermark or something like that. Uh, so Buffett uh, talks a little bit about uh, uh, you know how, how to run a fund basically and uh, so some of those thoughts are still valid today um, and uh, from time to time in Buffett's partnership letters he relates uh, some anecdotes called uh, the joys of compounding so uh, from time to time if you uh, in his partnership letters you will see a section called the joys of compounding where uh, he would take some historical example of uh, uh, say say um, you know uh, b uh, how, how the United States uh, bought, bought Manhattan from uh, from uh, the Native Indians, and uh, so so was that a good deal or a bad deal? <laughs> uh, if, if you look at it purely in terms of the time value of money and things like that, so he has these uh, nice historical anecdotes um, 
and he he usually puts them in the section called the joys of compounding uh, which is where i think gautam bait got uh, the the title of his uh, his book from so, so those sections are enjoyable but i i think if you read the the shareholder letters the berkshire letters uh, a lot of the concepts that are already in the partnership letters would be covered in the in the shareholder letters so uh, unless you are interested in these specific things uh, you may not be missing out on a on a whole lot okay great great thanks sure and, and my uh, one more question is basically the uh, i think you mentioned about the approach that you took uh, to read or understand these letters right so um you mentioned about 3 months i don't know how far it uh, took for you to apply these principles in in the investment decisions right uh, basically one is to understand the letter i know though even though it is very few pages of um document basically it carries a lot of value and you need to have a lot of references especially for example the owner earnings and look through capital uh sorry look through earnings right. so those aspects like where we tend to refer a uh, lot of other references and also work out some uh, practical examples in terms of understanding uh, how these will make an impact so how how did you manage to internalize these concepts and bring this into our investment decision uh, to manage uh, your 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 portfolio or um, shortlisting the business if you can throw some of your experience on that uh, it would be really good Uh, so the final question is on the the mistakes uh, that buffett uh, highlighted or maybe the learnings uh, uh, if 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 you can highlight some of the mistakes or other things that he uh, shared in the letter which made an impact uh, on your investment journey that will also be really good thank you absolutely so the, these are all such wonderful questions uh, so i'll i'll take the first one which is um, uh, How, how exactly do you uh, read, reading these letters and learning the concepts is one thing but uh, actually applying these concepts to uh, investing um, to your own portfolio that that is a different thing and you you're absolutely right um, so first of all even when you read these concepts or at least when when i read uh, the letter uh, it took me a little bit of time to understand uh the concepts so uh, i'm sort of a very uh, mathematical person so when i read a particular concept uh, i like to sort of work out the numbers for myself uh, so so i will imagine a toy business uh, um, that, that that had a very simple set of financial statements and try to figure out okay what exactly is buffett talking about so uh, if he, if he talk uh, if he was talking about owner earnings for example uh i i will take a very simple business uh and i will try to work out the numbers for it and uh, try and see what buffett is saying and if if you try to do this sort of thing uh you do understand the concept uh, a lot deeper uh but it also takes a lot more time to understand these uh, concepts and to internalize them uh so it did take me a while uh to uh, sort of start applying these concepts uh to my own portfolio but a few things that i started doing right away uh, is i started focusing much more on return on capital and these kinds of metrics uh that that is one thing um, more than growth in the business so buffett uh, he repeatedly makes this point in in his letters that not all growth is good so uh, just because a business is growing very rapidly 
doesn't necessarily make it a great company or anything like that. Uh, you also look at have to look at how much capital is required for that business uh, to achieve this kind of growth. So uh, a business that's growing only at 5% per year uh, can may still produce much better returns for an investor than a business that's growing at 10% per year. Uh, simply because uh, the business that's growing at 5% per year may not require any capital to grow at 5%. So it may be able to distribute all its earnings to its uh, investors, its owners every year. But the business that's growing at 10%, uh, it may require investing every single dollar back into the business. And only then it will be able to grow that grow at that 10%. So um, if you have to invest every every dollar back into the business, that means uh, the investors don't get to see any of these dollars uh, for a very long time. And so um, I, I started paying much more attention to uh, the quality of companies, the kinds of returns they're able to uh, earn on their capital. And this, ho- this whole idea of uh, when is growth good and when is growth not so good? And then this concept of look-through earnings. So if, if a company is earning, say, $5 per share, and then it's retaining uh, $2 back in its own operations and then distributing $3 via dividends or buybacks, uh, then you have to have this uh, kind of dollar test. Uh, so th- this um, uh, this money that the business is retaining in, in into itself, uh, will, will the business earn a good return on that money uh, in the future? and things like that. So I I started looking at these things and I also started reading uh, proxy statements uh, to try and figure out uh, the incentives for how managers were compensated. Uh, So for example, uh, Buffett has this wonderful line in his uh, 1985 letter um, where he talks about how managers should be compensated. So whenever you see these earnings reports that uh, companies put out, um, we, we've just been through, uh, uh, we, we are still uh, in earnings season and a lot of companies have already reported earnings. And it's very, very common to see, uh, oh, we had record revenues this year and we had record profits. So a lot of companies, uh, they like to say we have record earnings and record profits. But what, what they don't say is that they are also using record amounts of capital. So, so uh, if, if if a business um, had hundred dollars and it was earning say say ten dollars on that hundred dollars of capital, um, and then it it decided to retain all this ten dollars back into its own operations, and then next year it earned eleven dollars. Now its return on capital has not changed. It's still the same ten percent. It's still earning the same ten percent on on capital. So. Uh, but the business will say, uh, but people will say, you know, we, we had a record amount of earnings this year. Uh, it's not because they improve the business or anything like that. It's just because they have more capital to uh, earn uh, that money on. And so Buffett says, uh, even a perfectly ordinary savings account uh, will, will uh, if you put more capital into it, it will earn more money. But that doesn't make it uh, a great business or anything like that. Uh, you, you have to really, uh, and, and if managers are being compensated based on uh, the earnings without taking into account how much capital they are using to earn uh, that, that money, uh, then uh, the, uh, there are all, all kinds of perverse incentives at play here. And you have to be very careful um, immediately when, when managers are being compensated on earnings and earnings growth, but not on return on capital. 
that uh, that is kind of a red flag. Uh, so so uh, especially when you have all these uh, stock options and RSUs um, that that are uh, tied to earnings growth, and so so you have stock options which will vest only if the company achieves a certain amount of earnings growth. Uh, then the manager may have incentives to achieve that earnings growth even if it comes at low returns, which is not what is great for the owners, but which is great for the manager uh, because uh, he, he gets to get more stock options or whatever. So so I, I started looking at these points. Uh, uh, so so, so these, these, these are some of the ways I've taken Buffett's uh, lessons and uh, try, try to uh, apply them uh, in, in practice. Uh, so uh, I'm sorry. What what was the last question? I uh, uh, the last question was yeah. Thanks thanks for sharing your insight. And last question was on the mistakes uh, that he shared. Oh in yeah. The, uh, letter uh, which had an impact in your investment journey. Right. So, so so there are two two or three mistakes that Buffett shared uh, in in these letters. Uh, so so one one mistake is uh, I think when he bought uh, Dexter Shoe Company or something like that, and uh, that that wasn't uh, it wasn't a big mistake in uh, in terms of how much price they paid. So uh, at, at the time, uh, they, they probably spent a few million dollars or something like that on on, on Dexter, which is which is nowhere near the kinds of tens of billions that they allocate today. But uh, the the issue was that they paid for it using Berkshire stock and not not using cash. And uh, so uh, the value when when you give away stock in your company. This is a point that Buffett makes repeatedly. So when you're using your stock to buy uh, another company, uh, the you give up a certain amount of intrinsic value uh, when, when you part with your stock, when you issue ex- extra, extra shares. Uh, and the amount of intrinsic value that you give up to make this purchase should be roughly equal or less than the amount of intrinsic value you gain uh, from whatever you buy. And here, what happened was they gave away Berkshire shares and they got back shares in this uh, uh, Dexter shoe company. And uh, th- that shoe company basically um, uh, collapsed because of competition from uh, low, low cost uh, foreign manufacturers of, of shoes. Um, and, and so uh, they, they ended up giving away a piece of a wonderful business like Berkshire uh, to get a piece of a, a not so great business like Dexter, so that that was a mistake that Buffett made, and he talks about this mistake uh, quite a bit uh, in the letters. The the second mistake that he talks about is um, buying Berkshire itself. Uh, so uh, a lot of people think that uh, Warren Buffett uh, actually founded Berkshire, but that is not true. Um, so Berkshire Hathaway was a company uh, that, that was a textile company even before uh, Buffett bought it. And uh, what, what happened was Buffett had some, some sort of deal with the, uh, with, the, 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 with the majority owners of Berkshire. And uh, those people, uh, they reneged on the deal. And so Buffett uh, sort of lost his temper a little bit and then went and bought uh, an enormous amount of Berkshire shares and took control of Berkshire's board and, uh, and then um, uh, started, started running the company. Uh, but uh, he, he was not one of the founders of Berkshire. And uh, 
this was sort of a, this was not a purely uh, calculated rational decision like most of his uh, unlike most of his other decisions uh, where uh, he likes to calculate the numbers and uh, make a very recent calculation and then go and bet on uh, bets that are favorable to him this was not that sort of thing this was because he sort of lost his temper and then went and bought all these shares in a huff and and then he realized that this was a terrible business uh, because uh, he couldn't pull out any cash it it kept uh, guzzling more and more capital uh, and it didn't produce uh, more and more earnings that he could take out uh, simply because there was an enormous amount of competition and uh, the business had no pricing power um, nothing of the sort so he realized that this was a big mistake but to his credit he did take some cash out and invest it into other more profitable ventures like insurance and seas candies and and things like that um, but the the original berkshire purchase uh, was a mistake and buffett acknowledges it uh, many, many times in his <laughs> in his letters so so yeah if if you read the letters one of the things that really uh, strikes you is i mean here here is the world's greatest investor right by by any uh, uh but by most measures he is considered the world's greatest investor but uh, he is so humble about admitting when he makes a mistake and uh this is this is so refreshing to to read uh in in the letters and uh, so so that's that's a great point thank you tricky thanks thanks for uh, all absolutely. your uh so the next question uh is from raj Yeah, hi, Tanke. Um, thanks for again this wonderful sessions. So, I I had a question on. Um, first of all, the thing that I like about Buffett's newsletter is the humor part. I think his. Uh, I feel if he were not an investor, he would have been a stand-up comedian any day. <laughs> um, and 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 with Manja next to him, I think they would have doubled it up. I mean, I, I you know. I, I attend their Berkshire conference every year, and I can tell you that is the most, uh, you know, enjoyable Saturday sessions that I have, and 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 I love the humor, you know, the 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 subtle humor they have, right? So absolutely, uh, and and I I look for for the newsletters only for that part because you know the the kind of quotes he uh, um, the, he uses and the reference to history and all that. Right? So so I think that that's that's my takeaway, but. um on a serious note i wanted your views about you know buffett's focus on special situations or arbitrage kind of uh, you know model uh it is investment style i mean uh, i know that at some point he was uh using that as one of his uh, uh key tenants but uh, what are your takeaways based on the newsletters like you know um on 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 this um mode of investment right absolutely um, so uh, the the point about humor is is, is a great one um, so I, i think in in general uh, buffett is such a happy person and uh, um, he really enjoys what he's doing and uh, i i mean he 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 would much rather just be doing this he says he tap dances to work every day There, there's no reason for, uh, for him to sort of um you know work work at this age he he just absolutely loves what he's doing and uh, so uh, he he's got a great sense of humor but 
more than that he's just so happy with life and uh, this this kind of enthusiasm for life and investing uh, is is so contagious when you when you read his letters uh, it it sort of uh, flows out of the pages and uh, strikes you and so so i i really enjoy reading his letters for for that reason uh, the the second thing is the the special situations um, yes so a lot of people have uh, made enormous amounts of money by betting very intelligently on special situations and um uh, arbitrage also and uh, so so they are not exactly the same thing Ar- arbitrage is slightly different from uh, betting on special situations but uh, so if you read buffett's partnership letters there is a lot more focus on on these kinds of situations where uh, so if if a company um, let's say company a decides that uh, it will it will go and buy company b at a price of 10 dollars per share say um now uh, the shares may be trading in the market for say $9.50 a share so one thing you can do is you can buy the uh, the shares for $9.50 and then uh, when when whenever the purchase goes through uh, you will get $10 for your shares now of course there is a certain amount of risk with that it's not risk free uh, because the deal may not go through the regulators may not approve the deal um or this company may do some due diligence and decide to scrap the deal so there are all these risks that you take but you do get this uh, 50 cents if the deal goes through and buffett had a uh, lot of stuff uh, like this a lot of bets like this that he was making uh, during the years that he was running the partnership um these days uh, these these kinds of situations um, he he cannot Uh, deploy tens of billions of dollars into these kinds of situations so he doesn't do that but if you want to learn his thoughts on this uh, you can go and read his uh, uh, partnership letters and some of the principles there uh, he for, for example one one thing he talks about is uh, the use of leverage um, so uh, he says that um, in in these kinds of special situations uh, you can apply a certain amount of leverage to increase your returns and it won't increase your risk that much uh, whereas in a in a more conventional type of business uh, increasing your uh, leverage may increase your uh, risks so much more and and so um, uh, so buffett actually when when he was running the partnership he was using leverage with uh, these special situations and so uh, some of those principles that he discusses in those letters they may still apply to uh, investors who are looking to take advantage of these kinds of opportunities uh, but of course a lot has also changed uh, since he wrote those partnership letters so uh, we have to be cognizant of that as well uh, does does that answer the question yes yes Th- thank thanks a lot absolutely i'll take um, uh, the next caller who is uh, uh, louis pedro hello can you hear me hello yes all right uh thanks for everything you do it's really great your your threads and this space it's really great thank uh, you uh so my my question for this week uh is uh, warren buffett talks about size i don't remember if i read this from you I can't quite quite remember, but uh, he he says if he had one million dollars, he he could get like fifty percent returns. 
I think it's along those lines, but I don't know if you can expand on that because right now he can't get fifty uh, percent returns because of the size of his of of the well he manages, right? Uh, that's correct. Uh, so uh, he he has been warning about this for a for a long time. So if you read uh, Berkshire's say, say the 50th anniversary letter or something like that, uh, he he repeatedly warns that uh, Berkshire is now at a size that is uh, so big, and they have so many billions of dollars to invest that um, what whatever outperformance they get over the S&P 500, uh, they they do uh, hope to get uh, some outperformance. But whatever outperformance they get, uh, it will be um, not large. It will be a, only a small uh, amount of outperformance in percentage terms, uh, simply because they are managing so much more capital. And yes, uh, Buffett has made this statement before uh, that uh, if he was managing only $1 million, uh, he could get 50% uh, per year returns. And uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how he would do that. Uh, that that part he left out in that interview. <laughs> so uh, I, I think we are we, we have to figure out for ourselves uh, how how he might have done something like that. He probably would need to take more risks, right? <laughs> uh, well, so uh, Buffett has always been a fairly concentrated um, investor, but he has also known very well uh, how to manage downside risk. So uh, a lot of people look at Buffett's portfolio and they, they say, um, look, he's extremely concentrated. And uh, uh, so so he's taking on a lot of risk because people believe that lack of diversification uh, is equal to uh, risk. But in, in the letters, Buffett talks about this uh, explicitly. And he mentions that, uh, you know, there's different kinds of diversification. And uh, whenever you have a bunch of opportunities that you invest in, um, what really is important is you have to look for uncorrelated investments. So if you have a bunch of investments, if you if you invested in, say, 20 different stocks, but all the stocks go up and down at the same time, you're not really diversified, even if you invested in 20 different stocks, because they all move up and down together. Uh, whereas if you have invested only in five different businesses, uh, but they are all uncorrelated to one another. So uh, just because business one faces a hardship doesn't mean the same hardship goes and affects business two. Uh, so if they are uncorrelated to one another, then uh, you may be getting uh, more diversification out of owning these five businesses than out of owning 20 different stocks, which are correlated. So um, a lot of people perceive uh, Buffett as a as a huge risk taker because of his concentrated positions, um, but uh, you, you really have to look at the correlations among. Uh, you have to look at the kinds of risks he's taking with each bet and the correlations among those bets uh, to figure out whether he's adequately diversified or not. And Buffett is actually one of the most well diversified investors. Uh, even when he was really young and he was uh, running all these uh, different businesses, he had like six or seven businesses that he was running at the same time. He had some newspaper route and he had uh, he, he was selling some golf balls. He was operating some pinball machines. He, he was running a whole bunch of uncorrelated businesses that were each producing cash flows for him. Uh, so, so, so this whole idea of uh, is Buffett taking on uh, 
an unnecessary amount of risk to produce his returns um, that 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 is a question uh, that a lot of people don't quite uh, look at it the the right way okay great thanks sure uh, so so the next question uh, is again from shashi uh hi tenke uh, hey. a quick question uh, uh i think in one of the uh, buffett's letters uh, with regards to the topic of inflation he brings up a point where companies should use uh, something like uh, a replace uh, sorry replacement cost accounting uh, i think what he means is like uh, uh, in inflationary periods the cost of good goes up so when uh, when a company uh, you know prepares their uh, financial statements or whatever the cost should uh, reflect the replacement cost of the good something along the lines uh, i mean is this something is this uh, like a different kind of accounting or uh, is it something followed uh, uh, by other companies just uh, would like to know thank you right absolutely so uh, if if a company bought uh, some some asset say 10 10 years ago and it had a uh, it, it it had a say a, a life of 5 uh, years um, and let, let's say the asset costed 1 1 billion dollars uh, 10 years ago um now now uh, the uh, the the useful life of the uh, asset um would be depreciated by a by a certain sum each year right um and mm-hmm. uh, today the replacement cost uh, so so there is a certain amount of cost that is recorded uh, on the income statement for depreciation of this particular asset but today if the company wanted to uh, uh, be, because this this asset has a, a particular useful life at the end of that useful life this asset would have to be replaced and the cost of that replacement much may be much higher uh, per year than uh, the depreciation cost that is stated on the books uh, so so this is uh, this again comes into the, uh, the 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 question of maintenance capex versus growth capex so the company may uh, report a certain amount of earnings but uh, if it requires reinvesting part of those earnings uh, back into the business just to preserve the earnings power so uh, mm-hmm. this company that we have um, yeah. it has a certain amount of earnings power but if it wants to preserve that earnings power then uh, next year it has to spend more uh, to replace this asset uh, which is nearing the end of its useful life and so uh, a big part of its earnings may have to be spent uh, just to maintain the current earnings and in a situation like this uh, what buffett says is you you really uh, you can't count all the reported earnings as your true earnings because uh, a big part of uh, the reported earnings is just going to go to replace this asset which is not going to grow your earnings power it's just going to preserve your earnings power uh, and so if uh, if whatever needs to be reinvested back into the business the capex if that is higher than depreciation then you have to uh, subtract the difference from reported earnings and only that will give you your true earnings power now i don't think a lot of companies do this uh, because uh, companies have have very specific rules that they have to follow when they are depreciating assets and things like that so i don't think they do this in their uh, conventional accounting but i think what buffett is saying is that 
if you are an investor uh, you you have to apply these kinds of adjustments to the company's statements uh, in order to get a more uh, true picture of the company's real earnings power uh, so I, I don't think buffett is proposing a, a change in the accounting rules or whatever but i th- i think he's just saying that accounting rules have all these problems associated with them and so if you are an investor you have to uh, sort of adjust for these problems um, um, to to account for things like inflation and 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 maintenance capex and things like that uh, and the other thing that buffett addresses um, if you read his letter uh, or if you if you read his article in fortune magazine how uh, inflation swindles the equity investor he also talks about the mm-hmm. uh, lifo versus uh, fifo accounting yeah, uh, yeah yeah now that that is uh, uh, you know comp- companies have a choice they can either choose uh, fifo accounting or they can choose lifo accounting and mm-hmm. basically uh, lifo means uh, last in first out so uh, let's say a company is selling uh, books right um, now it it acquires books at uh, say 10 10 per book and then sells those uh, books at $20 uh, per book say now now because of inflation uh, maybe the the costs have increased and now the company is able to acquire books only at say $15 per book but the sale price is still the same $20 now suppose uh, say there are two copies of the book uh, that this company sold uh, the first copy it acquired the copy one one year ago and so it paid $10 for that copy the second copy it acquired only recently and so it paid $15 for that copy and then uh, it sold one copy uh, to a customer for $20 now is the business uh, has it made a profit of $5 or has it made a profit of $10 so that depends on whether uh, the copy that was sold to the customer was it the first copy or the second copy right and uh, so if you do lifo accounting you would say last in first out so the profit is only $5 but if you use fifo accounting the first in first out so uh, the cost is actually $10 and the profit is uh, also $10 so the choice of accounting can affect uh, how how much profit you report uh, in an inflationary environment and buffett talks about this in his uh, mm. in his fortune article so yeah i read that part uh, i believe yeah and also i think he mentions the companies they choose to use this uh, fifo but the effect is only temporary uh, i mean temporarily you will uh, have you can report good profits but it's it's just a temporary thing uh, eventually it, it will not work something like that i believe he was Uh, right uh, absolutely because um, you know companies uh, for various reasons they can't keep switching between fifo and lifo as and when they like there are there are rules about how how often they can switch and so on <laughs> so so they can't just uh, keep using this to uh, report increased earnings or whatever but um, if if you are just looking at the earnings of the company uh, without noticing that uh, they've done this accounting change or whatever then you might see uh, you, you might not get a true picture of the economics of the business okay uh, uh, one more question nk like um, as you know uh, warren buffett was a great investor and when he started uh, he was you know flying under the radar no one knew about him and people who are lucky enough to invest with him are like you know now 
millionaires. So in this current situation, do you know anyone who is, uh, you know, who is flying under the radar with the capacity of Warren Buffett? Uh, um, that, that, that is a great question. And uh, so I don't know if anyone has the, well, there, there are a lot of young investors whom uh, I admire and uh, I read their uh, quarterly letters and things like that. I, but the capacity of Warren Buffett, wa- Warren Buffett is such a far outlier that it's very difficult to tell whether uh, s- somebody has the capacity of <laughs> Buffett because he, he, he is just, uh, you know, so, some, something like a uh, once in a blue moon kind of uh, investor. So uh, I don't want to name someone and, and say that uh, he's the next Warren Buffett or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> uh, but there are a lot of investors whom I really admire. And um, uh, you can, so, so uh, there is this page on Reddit called uh, Security Analysis. Uh, so, so there's a subreddit called Security Analysis. And uh, what these guys do is every quarter, there, there is a bunch of investors who uh, who run funds and they write uh, investor letters to their clients mm. and all these letters mm. are uh, uh, made available um, in in this particular subreddit and so mm. if you if you go and download uh, these letters and read them once a quarter or something like that uh, you you can get a good idea of uh, how how different kinds of investors think and um, um, what their different approaches are, what, what they have in their portfolio, and, and so on. And it's possible to come to some kinds of conclusions about, you know, who, who you think is a good investor versus who you think is just uh, being lucky for a, uh, for, for a certain number of quarters or something in the recent past. So that, that, that's one good way to sort of uh, try and figure out uh, whether uh, uh, who, who, who the next crop of successful investors uh, might might be. Yeah, thanks, Tinky. Thank you. Sure. The next caller is uh, Rehertz. Hi, Tinky. Hello. Hi. Um, I one comment and one one question. Uh, comment is. Uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I actually started to read uh, letters, and I started with uh, partnership letters. So, yeah, that's a comment. And uh, um, maybe question is um, about inflation. So, in one of interviews, uh, um, Buffett uh, speaks about companies which are um, which will who will which will survive inflation's best, and and he pinpoints two conditions. First is pricing. Company has to have a pricing power. And second, company has to have a, um, uh, has to be capital light or asset right. light. I, I want you, if, if you can shortly or, or not so shortly, expand the second point, company right. being capital light. Yeah. Uh, ab- absolutely, absolutely. So if, if, you, if you had a company like say Starbucks, for example, um, when, when when inflation hits, um, it's going to affect Starbucks in two ways. One is uh, Starbucks is going to have to pay more to its employees 
uh, it's going to have to pay more uh, in terms of rent. It's going to have to pay more in terms of acquiring uh, to, to acquire coffee beans and, and things like that. So these are all increases in operational costs of running the business. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Starbucks also requires, uh, let's say Starbucks keeps uh, three, three weeks of uh, coffee in, in inventory or something like that. Now, what's going to happen is uh, those three weeks of coffee uh, translates to a certain amount of capital. And in an inflationary environment, when the price of coffee is rising, what's going to happen is Starbucks now requires more uh, in inventory, right? And so where exactly is this is the capital for this inventory going to come from? It's going to come from Starbucks's earnings. So if Starbucks earns, uh, say, say $3 billion this year, but it has to spend, say, $500 million, uh, just to uh, increase its inventory, uh, then that means uh, it has only $2.5 billion to give to uh, shareholders. So even if Starbucks... Uh, has pricing power uh, if, it, if it is able to raise the price of coffee. Uh, and so it may be able to increase its earnings by, say, 10% in a in a 10% inflationary environment. It doesn't mean that the owners of Starbucks will see a 10% increase in the cash flows they can pull out of Starbucks because uh, whatever uh, earnings uh, that Starbucks earns, a portion of that has to be reinvested uh, uh, to because Starbucks needs capital uh, to to buy more inventory and things like that. So just because a company uh, increases earnings doesn't mean that cash flows to investors will increase. And uh, so that's why uh, just pricing power is not enough uh, to survive inflation. The company also needs to be capital light. So capital light means Starbucks doesn't need a whole lot of inventory or anything like that. And so uh, since since it is so capital light, um, it, its pricing power is actually translated into cash flows and not just reported earnings. That, does that make sense? Okay, yeah, thank you. Uh, and one, if, if I may, one more question. Sure. Um, uh, in these partnership letters, uh, he speaks, uh, and he, he kind of prog- uh, make, makes a prognosis about how, how he will do uh, against market. And he says that if market will will rise, go up, then probably he will fail to beat market. But if market uh, is stable or goes down, then he, he, prob- he, he will beat market. Uh, my question is uh, about Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, how do you think? Is, is it the same thing now with Berkshire Hathaway? That's one question. And second, is, is, there, is there really, um, are we really sure if we really understand what the true value of Berkshire is? Thank you. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't catch the the second question. Are, are we really sure about what? About um, about market value or market cap of per uh, about intrinsic value of Berkshire, uh, oh. because it's it's uh, such a like conglomerate of uh, so much businesses, and and and, and I, I I'm not sure if we really understand how 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 market uh, intrinsic value of this. Uh, of this company, 
has to be uh, calculated. Right. Uh, absolutely. Uh, well, so um, the, the first question, so during the partnership years, um, Buffett did say many times that, uh, you know, they, they do better when the wind is in their face or something something like that. So when the market goes goes up, they may not perform that well uh, relative to the market. But when the market goes down, uh, uh, they, they, they will outperform the market. Uh, the, the partnership will outperform the market, some, something like that. Uh, now, even though Buffett kept saying this, if you look at the actual results, uh, he outperformed the market no matter what <laughs> during those years. So my market could go up, market could go down. He, he would handily beat the market in, in both, uh, both kinds of years. And so, so I, I don't know how much store you would set uh, by that. Uh, but yes, in recent times, um, so uh, if, if you look at the, the, the portfolio of companies that Berkshire has, uh, now typically uh, they, he, he owns a bunch of very uh, defensive uh, sorts of businesses. And so when, when there is euphoria in the markets, um, uh, th- those businesses may not perform that well. Uh, compared to some hotshot uh, uh, new growth stocks or some, something like that. Uh, but generally, they are businesses that uh, uh, produce lots of cash flows and things like that. And so uh, I, I think there is some truth uh, to saying that, yes, um, Berkshire is more likely to do well uh, when the markets are not doing that well. The The second thing is when markets are not doing very well so for example in, in during the 2008 uh, financial crisis that was uh, uh, that that was uh, sort of the last major uh, downturn uh, when when markets don't do well uh, capital becomes very scarce and so if bank of america or goldman sachs or somebody they they need to be uh, they, they need a $5 billion or something like that, or they need a vote of confidence. Uh, Buffett will uh, get calls during those times to either invest in companies or to acquire other companies and, and so on, uh, which can help him deploy capital. And so uh, th- those returns may not show up when the, uh, when the market is down, but when the market eventually recovers, uh, Buffett, Buffett may have completely cleaned up on the investment because he will be able to negotiate all kinds of special deals for this uh, for, for his capital, which he's uh, investing into these companies. So, uh, so, so I think uh, a downturn in the market uh, could be good for uh, Berkshire in the long term because that will give Berkshire uh, an opportunity to deploy enormous amounts of capital. Uh, very intelligently, so 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 that 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 is um, that's why I think uh, that that statement that Buffett made during the partnership years uh, may, may may still be uh, may, may still hold some value. Uh, the the second thing is um, yes, Berkshire is is this huge conglomerate structure, and as you rightly point out, it's it's not an easy company to analyze. It's a very very 
if if we are just beginning uh, to analyze uh, uh, companies um, berkshire is not the first company you should take and try to find its intrinsic value or or whatever because it's just a very very complex business to try and understand um but there there are a, uh, so so the conglomerate structure uh, is not in itself good or bad it depends on how it is being used and berkshire's conglomerate structure in particular um, offers it some very very powerful advantages so the biggest advantage of having a large collection of businesses under one roof is that you can take capital out of one business and invest it into another business so if if you had a bunch of uh, public uh, publicly traded uh, companies say um now if if you had 10 10 different companies uh now some of these companies may be producing earnings which they can reinvest back into themselves but other companies may may not have any ways to reinvest uh this this capital and so uh these companies would have to return that money to shareholders um say for example by giving a dividend and then the shareholders would have to pay a tax on that dividend and and so on but if you had all these 10 companies under the same roof and uh, what you can do is you can pull earnings out of one company uh, not pay any any taxes uh, more, more, not not pay double taxes uh, on on the dividends so the company would still have to pay uh, taxes on on profits but it's not this two layers of taxation so uh, you, you pay your taxes and then you can uh, sort of invest that money uh, very tax efficiently into some other uh one of these 10 companies which requires that capital and which can earn a decent return on it so that that is the whole idea behind berkshire is if you if you just have a large number of businesses under one roof you can pull capital out of some and uh push it into others you can make all these intelligent bets uh if you had a good capital allocator uh running things and buffett and munger are of course uh, some of the best capital allocators on on the planet so that has worked out Uh, very well for uh, berkshire but you are absolutely right having this huge conglomerate structure makes it very very hard to uh, analyze berkshire uh, uh, but, but the the nice thing is uh, in, in one of buffett's recent letters uh, he uh, talks a little bit about how he looks at berkshire and um, uh, he he uh, groups uh, so, sorry he he Uh, says berkshire has five buckets of value or something like that where uh, he takes all of berkshire's operations and then puts it into uh, these five buckets and he says you can approximately get a, a good uh, idea of the intrinsic value of berkshire just by looking at uh, the, these five buckets and trying to ascribe uh, some value to them based on their uh, either their market value or uh, whatever they earn and and things like that so um you don't have to uh sort of look at every single tree uh in the forest in order to be able to um come up with a conservative value for the forest as a whole um so so you you can do things like that and and there are uh, people like uh, chris bloomstrand every, every year they religiously publish uh, uh their uh, uh, analysis of the valuation uh, of berkshire and you can you can read um read read chris's letters and uh, try to understand how he values berkshire and um you you can do things like that as well
Okay. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's it's not easy to find the intrinsic value of Bookshare. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, so do we have any further questions? Well, um, looks like we don't. And uh, we are already past an hour and a half. So uh, thank you all so much for showing up. And uh, this was an episode that I really enjoyed um, because uh, learning, uh, so, so reading Buffett's letters have taught me, has taught me so much about investing and pretty much uh, m most of what I know about investing, uh, uh, I think it's fair to say that Buffett and Munger have in, in some way or other taught it to me. And so um, I'm uh, very, very uh, excited to uh, sort of uh, do this episode and talk about some of the key learnings. And I hope that some of you will go on to uh, read those uh, uh, letters of uh, Buffett. And uh, I, I can promise you that if you stick with it, uh, you, you will learn, uh, you will come out the other end a much better investor uh, than, than how you went in. So um, at least that, that was my experience. So uh, thank you all for showing up and uh, see you next week. Bye-bye.